0: Continue to climb this mountain of worship of the one true God. Now we continue in his scriptures in a, in a book that God inspired the Apostle Paul to write to a church. A church not any different from us. As we look into this word this morning, God has given us a very important teaching. As you turn there, I want you to know that uh, we live in a world of discontent. Uh, discontent abounds, even in our own lives. We understand this. We are seeking contentment all the time, many times in the wrong places. As I've considered this text this week, and I, I said, where is evidence of discontentment in the world that we live in? I was drawn to the world of advertising and marketing. And if you look at your TV, or if you even listen to your radio, or look at the billboards that will fly by you in life, you need to understand that there is a a principle and a spirit of discontentment that permeates all of that. One of the greatest drivers of discontentment is the advertising world. We're already fallen in this way. We already have this proclivity towards discontentment. And I think the world knows that and pours gasoline on that fire and builds it up into a raging inferno if we're not careful. Just look at what's going on in our marketing day. You know, I believe way back in the very first commercials, I think they were innocent commercials rightly presenting the opportunity for you to meet a need in your life by acquiring a product or service that somebody had to offer. Advertising is important. We need to know where we can go to get what we need. That's pretty innocent. But over time, I think the commercial world started shifting. And I think the, the greed of money, the lust of money, and the coveting of gain corrupted this advertising world. And so now today's commercials largely are about creating demand for the product or service that someone's selling. And they do this by creating discontent. Today's commercials want to make us dissatisfied in our status quo. We must not live without that product or that service. Our reputation is tarnished if we don't possess this or use this. In fact, some commercials might go so far as to say your personhood is not complete if you don't partake of what we have to offer. And the result is we are absolutely confused. (laughs) If you look at your heart and your mind on all the things that you can acquire in this world or you have or don't have, I think you'll find in you, like I have found in me, a state of confusion. The things that we really need, we don't want because no one's told us that we need those things. The, The things that we really want... We don't need. But somebody's told us, need, you need to be discontent without this. And so we mindlessly sometimes charge off into the wild blue yonder in this state of discontentment. It also happens in our circumstances. Let's leave the advertising world. We are prone to be a people that think that circumstances have to be exactly right for us to be content. And this is the point that Paul goes after in his letter to the Philippians this morning. Before we go there, I want to set the table real briefly. You need to understand why it is that God created you. We talked about this with our kids this last week. Why did God make man? And the answer is, God made man to worship Him and to enjoy Him forever. Right now, yes, and in all of eternity after Christ comes again. That is why we are created. Yet in our fallen condition, and in the bombardment that we get from the culture, man largely lives like this. They want to worship themselves. We want to worship ourselves and enjoy this life now. And that is contrary to God's great design for us. And this is what produces in us discontentment. When we don't worship God and enjoy Him forever and we worship ourselves and enjoy our best life now. So this morning God in all of His infinite graciousness long ago inspired the Apostle Paul to pick up a stylus and to scratch on some parchment papers to send to the Philippian church some words of vital instruction for us. And it worked well for the Philippians. They needed it. And we are no different today. And I plead with you to dial in with me now on these verses. And let's see exactly what God would teach us through the writings of Paul. Look with me at verses 10 through 13 of Philippians 4. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. We see verse 10 standing out a little bit separate from 11 through 13. My first point this morning is that Paul in the eyes of the Philippians is gone, but he's not forgotten. And Paul rejoices in this fact. He's gone, but he's not forgotten. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So he's not forgotten, but because he's been removed from their presence and because he's traveled great distances, they've not had, for whatever reason, an opportunity to minister to him by supporting him. And we're talking about financial and material support here. Because earlier he's been thankful for their prayer support. Paul is rejoicing again. As I said, he rejoiced earlier in this letter for their prayers. He rejoiced in the opportunity to be poured out as a drink offering to complement their offering to the Lord. He rejoices in the Lord always. He encourages the Philippians to be people that rejoice in the Lord. And here he is rejoicing, even though he's not been able to be supplied by them for some season. There's no blame in what he's saying. His words are not accusatory of you've neglected me or you've been sluggish or disinterested. He says, you indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Why no opportunity? Well, he's been removed from the Philippian church for years. Uh, If you look through the trajectory of Paul's letters, if you look at the account and the timeline of the book of Acts, he's been removed some say maybe even for 10 years it's been since he was in Philippi in this church. And so he's not in their presence day in and day out. He's been on the move. He's been on ships. He's been on roads. He's been all over the Middle East traveling to different places, different churches that he's planted. He's a moving target. And they don't know where he is at any given moment because we don't have Find My iPhone at this point. He's gone long distances. He's imprisoned. He is prohibited from being in their presence, and even at sometimes receiving their communication. So maybe just the distance and the movement has prohibited them, not given them the opportunity to supply Him. Maybe it's, this text doesn't say this, but maybe the Philippian church went through a season where they didn't have the means to supply Him. Or perhaps they didn't even know of His condition. They did send Epaphroditus... With a message, right? Maybe they're learning of his condition and now they're engaging with him like they once did. But nevertheless, through Paul's own words, we understand these Philippians never looked away from Paul in his need. And now, for whatever reason, they're in a season that they can start meeting his needs again. And he is thankful for that. But he uses that as an opportunity to launch into a very vital teaching that we now get this morning. So look at verse 11 with me. My second point is, there's there's a secret here that Paul has, and it's a great secret of Christian contentment. It's point number two. Point number one, he was gone but not forgotten, and now that they have remembered him in such a way that they can supply his needs, he's going to use that opportunity to teach them the secret of Christian contentment. And I know you. I am your pastor. And I know you, and I know me, by the way. And we need this secret, don't we? So let's see what God teaches us here this morning. Paul quickly makes sure that the Philippians don't misunderstand him. He has said thank you for meeting my need. But he says, not that I am speaking of being in need. In other words, this is not a thank you to grease the pipeline to get more out of you. I don't need it, but I'm thankful for it, and I rejoice that you've been generous again. Have you ever felt manipulated by someone in their thank you? That is not what's happening here. He's genuinely thankful, but he's not dependent on them. He's dependent on another, and we shall see that momentarily. Paul expounds on this concept A little bit later, look over in verse 15 and 16 of this same chapter. Over there, Paul says, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, that was their region, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And then look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases... To your credit, I don't seek your gift. I am thankful for your gift and I delight in your gift because your gift produces fruit. And that fruit is the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So I rejoice that God has used you to fund the expansion of his kingdom in the ministry that I'm doing. It is not at all about Paul and his wherewithal. So Paul establishes that his contentment is firmly set in whatever circumstance that he has. Look at the rest of that verse. For I have learned in whatever situation, verse 11, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. I am content in whatever situation. I am in. And in the moment, the situation was, the Philippians supplied his need, and he uses that need for fruit in the kingdom of Christ. Now, Paul teaches, the heart of this text is right here in 11 and 12 and 13. Paul gives us some learning here, some teaching here, and it is this, that contentment, listen to me, contentment is learned. Through experience. It's not something that happens to us. We have to go through things in life. To establish the state of contented hearts. And he gives us two categories of experience. It's real simple. There are two categories of experience that we learn contentment through. The first one is this. There in verse 12. I have learned. And I know. How to be brought low. This is where we learn contentment. In the moments in life when we are brought low. We just sang, in every sorrow, Jesus is better. There are times in life where sorrow is experienced. But there is someone that carries us through those times of sorrow. His name is Jesus Christ. And so we have these moments in life where we're brought low. Paul certainly has experienced them. And he says, even in those circumstances, I have learned the secret of contentment. So I just want to quickly give you a biography of the man that wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Paul's life. When Jesus Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus and saved him, In that moment, he sent him into town, into Damascus, to a street called Straight. And he set him down in a room. He had scales over his eyes. Whatever that means, he was blind and he was dependent upon everybody else but himself. And our Christ went to a man named Ananias and said, I've got a job for you. And Ananias resisted and said, do you know who this is? Yes, I do. I know exactly who it is. And then Jesus said, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Paul is saying, I know how to be brought low. Because my Christ appointed to me a season of suffering. What kind of suffering? Suffering. If you're not familiar with Paul's background, let me give you a little list. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three and following. Paul writes, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. 40 was thought to kill you, 39 to maim you the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches that he wrote letters to. He knew how to be brought low. There's the list. And yet this man writes, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of contentment. Oh, Paul, we we need this. Now listen, he is not mindless to his circumstances. Contentment is not where you play tricks with your mind and just pretend like all the hardships that you're experiencing aren't there. It's not that at all. Because Paul has itemized for us the moments that he has been brought low. Low is low. Low. It is discerned, it is experienced, it is realized. So this is not a a call to not acknowledge the hardships in your life. It is a call to say, how are you going to respond to them? Modern psychologists would tell you to just play tricks with your mind and put those things out. They're not real, they're not really there. Yes, they are. And they are opportunities to worship Jesus Christ. That's what Paul would say. And he has said it over and over in his letters. There is an acknowledgement that he has been wronged. But this wronging, this being brought low, does not rob him of his mission. It does not divert him off of the trail that Christ has set for him. It does not dim his eternal outlook. He still has a bright eternity. He still enjoys God forever. Forever. It does not deplete his joy in Christ at all. Because in this letter, he's been saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Even when I'm poured out as a drink offering, I rejoice. So Paul is not vulnerable to deprivation. Deprivation does not incapacitate him. In serving the Lord and seeking the fruit of the kingdom of Christ. And when he's right there doing that work, pursuing that fruit, it doesn't matter what's happening to him. He is content. Now the second area that we learn contentment in, the the second experience is that of being prosperous. He says, after I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. I understand how to live in abundance, in prosperity. And you know what? When we read that quickly, if we're a little bit lazy when we read that, we go, well, yeah, if you've got everything you want, you're going to be content. Not so. Not so. I want you to know this morning that I think the most dangerous place we can find ourselves is in prosperity. It's not when we're being deprived of things, whether it be reputation or material possessions or even health. It's not when we're being deprived of those things that we're most vulnerable to forsake our Christ. The most dangerous place for any human being Saved or not saved, born again or not born again, is to be in a place of prosperity where everything is going well and perfect and right. And Paul tells us, hey, I know how to be content even when I'm prospering because contentment is not automatic in prosperity. We have to reorient ourselves to this. Prosperity is dangerous. The most miserable, discontent people Are living in prosperity. It is true. It is true. You have a person that has everything they could ever want. They are miserable. You go read the biography of Andrew Carnegie. And Rockefeller. These guys died miserable. Maybe not Carnegie. I believe that prosperity... Tempts us in ways that we're not ready for. I think we're lulled to sleep in prosperity. Uh, Just consider you know, people in your life where prosperity has ruined them. Why? Because they were discontent even when they had it all. Ecclesiastes tells us that man's eyes are never satisfied with riches. Never. I think this is proven out when I play Monopoly with my kids. And my son's nodding. He's cornered the market. He's got boardwalk and all those over there. Hotels all over him. And he's never satisfied with us landing on him until we're bankrupt. And even then, it's kind of a letdown because the game's over and I can't squash people anymore. He's never content. So what happens in our board game is really a reflection of what happens in our life. It's true. Discontentment abounds in us if we don't watch it. Look at what prosperity has done to the church. Oh, a reformation was needed 500 years ago because the church was prospering and drifted off the tracks of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Churches in our modern day abound in real estate and membership and programs. and They get derailed. And they drift ever so slightly away from the gospel. Prosperity is dangerous. Prosperity commands our attention and our discipline to seek contentment, not in the things that bring about our prosperity, but in one who is overseeing all. So Paul also is not vulnerable to prosperity, just like he's not vulnerable to being made low. It does not draw him away from serving the Lord. In his victories, in his many victories, Paul would say, Jesus is better. This is not ultimate. This does not satisfy me. Only Christ and Christ alone. Paul says, in any and every circumstance, abounding or being low, in any In every circumstance. In other words, Paul says, in spite of my circumstances, I know the secret of contentment. Circumstances don't dictate Paul's joy. And I want you to remember, he's not mindless to his circumstances. He understands them. Rather, Paul responds to his circumstances rightly. Rightly. And here's the big point. You need to write this one down this morning. I want you to listen to this real closely. Contentment is not the absence of problems. We think that. But that's wrong. Contentment is not the absence of problems. There is no such state... In this human life, in this fallen world, it is impossible to live in life without problems. You have cars, you have health, you have jobs, you have spouses, you have children. And in all of that brokenness of fallen people and fallen things in this world, problems surface hourly, maybe by the minute. So if you're looking for contentment to be a problem-free zone, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it. Contentment, here's the next thing you write. Contentment is peace in the presence of problems. And I'm building, we're climbing a mountain here because you're not going to find this contentment that I'm talking about in the world. It's only to be found in one place. And Paul is walking us down a path to that end, and it's coming quickly. Paul has learned the secret of contentment. Have you learned the secret of contentment? Are you a content person? This morning, the Lord has assembled us here this morning to teach us a vital, vital lesson. We've got to get this right. This is one of the most important secrets of the Christian life. You are learning this morning how to be content in broken circumstances. I want you to know, I like to look at it like this. I, I say this often. We live in double depravity. Double depravity. The world is depraved, it is broken, it is ruined, it is tarnished. And so are you. So the world is depraved, and you're depraved. You have sinned against the Lord. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, VBS, all week long. And so you've got depravity that you're contending with, and then while you're dealing with that, you have to contend with the depravity of the world. That's double depravity. The problems abound. Yet in the midst of all of this brokenness, There is hope for contentment. (laughs) Because that sounds bleak, doesn't it? You're broken, the world's broken. Double depravity abounds. How in the world can we be content? We can be content in nothing of this world, in nothing of ourselves. We've got to go elsewhere for contentment. It is found only in the perfect creator and sustainer of all things. Of all things. Our kids this week memorized Colossians 1.17. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The writer of Hebrews says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's saying the same thing. And so we don't find contentment in this broken world. We don't find contentment in our broken selves. We find contentment in the one who is before all things and in the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. That is the only place that contentment can be found. If this is true, that he is before all things and made all things and holds all things together, and if you believe it, then you can be content now in the here and now, in this life that he's given you. We must, like Paul, be grounded in the sovereignty of Christ. That's why he's content in a broken world. He knows that Christ is sovereign and rules and reigns over all that he has created. So let's go there now. This is my third point and my last point. Now Paul takes us in this text to the ground of our contentment. The ground. He says in verse 13. I can do all things. Through him. Who strengthens me. There's the ground. Him. And him. Is Jesus Christ. Who is before all things. And by him all things together now let's be very careful here this is a very vital verse that we've got to get right this morning we must first understand what paul is not saying oh man let's talk about what paul did not do and did not mean right here with this verse paul is not claiming to be able to do anything because god is on his side paul cannot walk on water Paul cannot resurrect the dead. He could do other things, but those things he didn't do. He cannot do those in Christ who strengthens him, because he didn't. Paul cannot play third base for the St. Louis Cardinals. And he can't break three-point records for the Golden State Warriors. We have athletes in this day and age that put verses on their high tops. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's really a boast about what I am doing on the basketball court. That is shameful. That is taking a text of Scripture that God inspired and using it as a proof text to boast about oneself. That is absolutely not what's going on here. Paul does not do that at all. This is one of the most abused verses in all of Scripture. I saw it on a kid's athletic uniform this last week in VBS and I was like, wow, there it is. Context has got to drive how we understand this verse. And it is written in a very specific context. This does not apply to your business. This does not apply to your athletic endeavors. This applies to your circumstances. And Paul says, I can endure and thrive through all circumstances in Christ who strengthens me to endure in such. That's what is meant here. This verse has been tragically mingled in with the American dream. I can remember being told in, in school growing up, you can do whatever you set your mind to, especially in America. And that's, that's not true. And that's an affront to God. Instead, the message ought to go like this. God has created you for a very specific purpose to worship Him and enjoy Him forever. Now let's seek together to find out what God has intended you to do so that you can fulfill this purpose for which you were created. That's different than saying you can do whatever you set your mind to. Because you can't. I cannot be a nuclear physicist. God did not endow me with a brain that would be capable of doing that. And I don't resent Him for that. kind of thankful. So we've got to be careful here that we don't lift this verse and start making it some banner that we wave, giving us a ticket to go after whatever we deem good for us to go after. Because this is about circumstances and enduring the circumstances while still worshiping and enjoying God forever. I also want to give a warning here. Uh, Along these lines, we don't claim this verse When we're living in a state of unrepentance. We don't look at tough circumstances that are upon us while we're living in unrepentant sin and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because your circumstances are not due to a sovereign God blessing you with circumstances in which you can promote the kingdom. It may be due to his hand of discipline. Upon you, And what he's doing is calling you to cease and desist from the sin that you're living in so that then whatever circumstances you do have, because you're right with Christ, you can endure all things. Contentment that we're talking about here, that Paul is teaching us about, can only be found in repentance and obedience to Christ. You don't get this when you're living like you want. In fact, I pray to God that we would all be discontent when we're living in sin. A holy discontentment. It's called conviction. And it's God's corrective measure to call us to repentance and obedience so that we can be back into a right relationship with Him. And then we have a chance for contentment. I really like 2 Corinthians 7.10. We say this verse a lot in this church. Paul has wounded the Corinthians with a hard letter, confronting them with sin in their lives. And he says, I regret that I've grieved you. Sorry, but I don't regret that I've grieved you. Which is it, Paul? It's both. He said, because godly grief, leads to repentance that brings about salvation without regret. So we needed the grief, the sorrow, when we saw our sinfulness through the eyes of God in the lens of Scripture, I am sorry, God, I have sinned against You and You only. Would You forgive me for this? Would You lead me on the way everlasting? There's my repentance... And then the Scriptures say when we do this with God, we are granted salvation or forgiveness. And then right after that, we get this blessed saying, without regret, i.e., with contentment. With contentment. And so the warning is, let's don't seek contentment from Christ, with the strength of Christ, when we're denying Christ in our sinfulness. That's a sign of repentance being needed. And then we're on the path to getting contentment that Paul is talking about. In context, basically, Paul is saying he can face any circumstance that God providentially assigns to him. And this endurance that he can have in those circumstances is attributable to the one and only who gives him strength, Jesus Christ. I can be low or I can abound. I can be hungry and thirsty or I can have plenty. In all circumstances, I've learned the secret of contentment. And it's found in Him who strengthens me. So, Paul can be powerful and influential in ministry. Or he can be shipwrecked, receiving 39 lashes, being stoned out Lystra and left for dead are beaten with rods. He can be bold and preach confidently in the synagogues. He can, he can confront those that are worshiping the unknown God at the Areopagus. Or he can be in prison writing a letter asking for his cloak to be sent and the books and especially the parchments. In any and all of those circumstances, Paul was content and his contentment was found in Christ Jesus. So, really important here this morning, our contentment must be independent of our circumstances. Good or bad. Contentment is not based on what you do or don't have. That does not drive contentment. It's not based on possessions or reputation at all. Contentment is based on who you do or don't have. Not what, but who. And you need to make sure you get the who right, because the who is not you. The verse does not say, I can do all things through me who strengthens me. It's through Him. The who is Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, the most discontent people are the people who are self-centered. We need to be Christ-centered if we are seeking contentment. Our contentment must be dependent upon Christ alone and none other. Paul demonstrates this. Look at Philippians 1.15 real quickly. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. In that I am content. Even if they preach Christ to my detriment, good, because Christ is proclaimed. So if our thoughts and actions are on Christ, we will, like Paul, be entirely content. And this is the secret of the Christian life. Christ is. Christ is the secret. So, how do, we, how do we do all things through Christ who strengthens us? Well, we consider His person and His work. You know the gospel. And if you don't, let, let's hear it real quick. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He is the creator of all things. He's before all things. He holds all things together by the word of His power. He made us in His own image and likeness, yet we sinned against Him and we disobeyed Him. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what was God's response to that? His response was, I'm going to take on flesh and I'm going to become like them. And I'm going to live the life as a substitute of righteousness that they were designed to live. I'm going to be a human and I'm going to live to worship me and enjoy me forever. And then having committed no sin, I'm going to die for my people. I'm going to get on a cross. I gave up a throne for a cross. The crown I wore was a crown of righteousness. I'm going to wear a crown of thorns. Knowing no sin, I'm going to become sin for those that have sinned against me. And I'm going to ask them. And I'm going to enable them to believe in me. And I'm going to pay the penalty for sin, which is death, for them. Even though I'm God and I made them. And so Jesus Christ is that person. And He came and He did that work. He died sinless for you. No matter what you've done. And if you'll believe in Him and His death. If you'll believe in Him that He abounded even in the grave, if you'll believe in Him that He rose on the third day, you no longer have the penalty of death laying upon you because He paid that price for you. And it is only then, only then, not before, that you can even have the wherewithal to claim that I can be content and I can endure all circumstances through Him who strengthens me. You get His strength only when you believe in your weakness in His strength. So Paul says, just in closing, this truly closes us right here in Philippians 3.8. Look right there with me. We're going to read Philippians three eight and then 4.13. This is the secret to contentment within the context of this letter Paul wrote. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. That's where contentment is found. So in short, Paul says, all I have is Christ. It's all I've got, Christ. And because he is all I have, I can face any and all circumstances. And I say to you this morning, this too must be your song. And I urge you to sing it from your heart. Father, you are a gracious God to come at us this morning... Addressing our hearts in the proclivity that we have towards discontentment. Father, you've made us to love you, to worship you, and to enjoy you forever, including right now. And we confess to you that we have had a tendency to love ourselves and to worship ourselves and to enjoy ourselves now. We repent of this as a people. We ask, us, we ask you to set us and our hearts upon the truth of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the secret of contentment. Fix our hearts on him and help us to sing of his truths in the way we think and act and speak. We pray all this for Your glory, God. You're glorified when we're content. And we also pray this for our benefit because we are better off content followers of Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.